Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Americans for Prosperity and www.tradebuildsamerica.com. More about that in a little bit. It's also brought to you by the National Review Institute, which we'll hear more about in a little bit as well. Today, we're doing another one of those wonkier deep dives on a, on a single subject, and we have perhaps one of the best people possible to do that with, and that is Roger Noriega. No relation to Manuel. And no, it goes back to Spain. The name goes back to Spain. My grandparents are from Mexico. So. And uh, Roger is a visiting fellow at AEI, so he's a colleague of mine. But he also has a, uh, a very long resume of jobs in various administrations working for on basically issues related to South, America, South Latin America, Central America, Cuba, and, of course, the topic du jour, Venezuela. So uh, – Curiosity. First of all, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. You grew up in Kansas, right? Yes, Wichita, Kansas. Yeah, which everybody just immediately associates with Latin American issues. Absolutely. <laughs> um, how did you what, – what is the path that got you into all this stuff? Well, uh, you know, my grand my, – actually, it's my great-grandparents on my father's side came uh, to Kansas uh, building the railroad, a lot of Mexican immigrants. And so uh, I actually did not learn – Spanish in the household, though, uh-huh. uh, in, in Kansas. My parents were bo- both born there, too, uh, and uh, was interested mostly in politics in general. Foreign policy kind of fascinated me. Went to a small school in Kansas, but my eye was on Washington. I interned here in 1979, uh, came out in 83 with a uh, member of Congress from Kansas, and um, immediately gravitated to the Central American Wars, kind of backing up Reagan and his effort to uh, push back communism, roll back communism in Nicaragua and El Salvador and other places, uh, and really took to it. And my first boss, per se, in the State Department was Elliot Abrams. Really? So this goes back a long, long way. And augmenting my bio, I was referred to yesterday uh, by a, uh, someone on the left as a, a dog of war. So <laughs> that, I'm going to have to add that to my, my official AEI uh, bio. So let me sort of break the fourth wall here. Where should we begin with things in, in Venezuela? Uh, is so it, why, why is Trump why, why is the Trump administration so fired up about this? Um, sure. Let's start with there. That's fine. Uh, why is the Trump administration so fired up about this? Well, uh, I think the uh, president very early on, uh, from what I can tell in interviewing senior folks, uh, saw Hugo, uh, Nicolas Maduro as a really bad guy mm. and uh, also wanted him out. Mm-hmm. And so that came very early on. They They reversed – uh, the policy of Obama to just sort of kick the can down the road, sanctioned the then vice president, Tarek al-Assami, uh, for uh, his involvement with Hezbollah and narco-trafficking, just a really, really bad guy that was on the, kind of on the radar screen, but mysteriously the Obama administration never could get around to, to sanctioning. So they took that, that glove off. A guy like Marshall Billingsley arrived there, uh, charging full speed ahead. But it wasn't until in the last... 
four or five months, John Bolton getting there and, and, and a new guy at the uh, NSC, Mauricio Clavercaroni, uh, who are, who are you know, very comfortable with these Latin American issues, stepped up and said, we're going to do something about this and gave the president the policy that he, he was really calling for all along. And uh, much more vigorous uh, application of sanctions, uh, uh, really uh, uh, multilateral diplomacy, walking, working with uh, countries from the region in, a, in kind of an atypical way from the from the Trump team, in a very, I would say, uh, uh, carefully pulling together fifty countries to recognize that the president of Venezuela. Today, constitutionally, is a man named Juan Guaido, not Nicolas Maduro, who tried to swear himself in uh, on January 10th to a new term in office based on elections last year that everybody in the world considered sham elections. So they've really committed very strongly to this. Uh, The team at state with Pompeo and and Elliot Abrams going over there to be a coordinator on Venezuela and committed uh, along with many countries in the the world to, to forcing Maduro out by forcing the hands of the military that they believe keep him in power. Okay, so let's 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 now sort of put things in reverse and start at the beginning um and we'll come back to the policy stuff because I have a bunch mm-hmm. of questions about that. For listeners who have only paid scant attention, Venezuela has the largest proven oil reserves in the world, right? Hugo Chavez, the predecessor of Nicolas Maduro, was legitimately elected. I mean, he I, Absolutely. I don't like populist right politics, but he was, right? He dies, Maduro replaces him, finishes out his term, and then runs what, as you say, was obviously a bogus election. The Constitution, so you have this, the the, the National Assembly in exile, essentially, um, in sort of internal exile, mm-hmm. so, although some of them have actually left the country, right? Sure, absolutely. And there's a provision in the Constitution that says if the president seizes power, they can then name their own president, and they've right. named Guaido. Right. They, they exactly they, they declare him a usurper. Right. And uh, Guaido, as president of the National Assembly, becomes a uh, sense to the presidency. Sort of the way the Speaker of the House goes to the presidency of For, vice president, president. Precisely. Right. Precisely. And Guaido was actually elected in his own regional election. Right. The entire National Assembly was elected in December 2015 in very free elections, really the last free elections. I think the regime didn't see them coming and there was a two-thirds landslide. Mm. And so the opposition actually took over uh, the, the National Assembly. Uh, uh, within a year of that election, Maduro created a, a, a parallel constituent assembly and said that this other group was uh, uh, was meaningless. Um, so just can we get a little sense of how badly they've – I mean they've screwed up this country? Um, right. Well, look, it does go back uh, to 98, right. uh, 99 when Chavez took power. He, I was actually on the ground when he was elected there uh, observing the, the process and he was elected you know, well over 50 percent of the vote in, in, in a fair contest. But he, he, he immediately set to shred the constitution and concentrate hands and uh, power in his hands. Uh, in a in a in a very systematic way, he broke down all the democratic institutions, and in a very dangerous way, 
uh, put the criminal justice system and the police and the courts in his hands as well, politicized all of that, mm-hmm. and used all that power to then crush the start to crush the private sector, anybody that could, would resist him and potentially have resources to 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 sustain some kind of internal opposition. Uh, then he succumbed to cancer. In point of fact, he was badly mistreated by the Cuban medical system. I, I've said that the. Mm-hmm that the one real achievement of the Cuban medical system is killing Hugo Chavez <laughs> because they, they mishandled uh, the, the, the cancer and forced him out back onto a campaign trail to win re-election. And then he, yeah. he actually died before he was supposed to be sworn in. Uh, Maduro was – they rushed around to appoint him vice president. So he's uh, – you know, what, is, shot, what is Maduro's background? Where, where was he before he became president? Maduro was the president of the bus drivers union. Uh-huh. What is with bus drivers? Because I'm, I'm in a job was a bus driver too, wasn't he? I, I do not know. Maybe but, I got that wrong. But uh, the, maybe I just hate bus drivers. Uh, but <laughs> but on, Ch- on Chavez, you know, he's the one that laid the foundation right. for destroying the economy, and he 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 did this with oil shooting well above hundred dollars a barrel. And Chavez was incredibly irresponsible in expanding the state and mm-hmm. sending this largesse overseas to buy this international uh, cadre that would, would, would support him. So Chavez is really directly responsible. And he's also responsible, uh, starting in 2005, in getting involved in narco-trafficking. Mm-hmm. And he did that initially to support the Colombian guerrillas, who were basically a narco-trafficking organization at that point. And he literally used oil money to buy cocaine. Mm-hmm. And then you had all this cocaine laying around, and he used it uh, to to empower his generals to go out and make uh, make a living for themselves. And, and so you have this narco regime busting out an economy, looting the state of hundreds of billions of dollars in oil revenue. Uh, it, it's really you haven't seen this kind of corruption and really diabolical policies, uh, I think, ever in yeah. history on this scale. Uh, although North Korea is, there's some similarities there, but that's not a great club to be part of. Um, no, no. Um, but do I have it right? You know, I seem to recall that there was talk a while back about trying to reform the Venezuelan economy, and they had bad, weird subsidies for energy and for gas prior even to Chavez. Right? Oh, absolutely, no? right? You, you know, uh, the the. Gasoline, for example, the prices internally it was like pennies, like pennies, on, yeah, uh, for a gallon, and and it, it sustained the, this contraband over to Colombia, uh, which was sort of the the, the start of of this uh, illicit economy, uh, you know, really dangerous gangs. Uh, sustaining themselves through this kind of uh, contraband. No, look, it, it, it's an, an oil-rich country, uh, you know, imperfect democracy, two political parties at the time that kind of batted power back and forth to one another, yeah. and, 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 and corruption uh, considered pretty pretty commonplace. Uh, so uh, they just took it, they, they, they turned it to 11, sure, basically. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so the, the reason I'm asking is, is one of the things, as you know, on the conservative side, there are a lot of us who like to say, stop pointing at Denmark and Sweden for socialism, look at Venezuela. And I get that argument. I make that argument sometimes. But on the flip side, isn't it f- fair to also say that Chavez was not actually a Marx-reading devotee of socialism? He's a, basically a gangster, right? It's gangsterish, gangsterism as government, which is a very natural 
going over the evolutionary history of humanity, the, a big man controlling all the resources and, this, and doling them out to favorites and playing favorites, that is actually sort of a very natural form of government. And the desire to sort of paint it as the example of real living socialism, um, I'm not defending Chavez or anything. I, mean, I think it's all terrible. But I mean, what is your sense that there was actually anything doctrinaire to the socialism and instead it was just your typical sort of Cadillo type strongman thug who get, who just wants to have as much power as possible. Right. It, it's really both of those things. Like yeah. I was saying, I'm not saying that to cop out. I mean, we're talking about Latin America where a Mexican observer said the last communist will draw his breath in, an, in a Latin American universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot of that. And Chavez kind of was uh, had this kind of dime store uh, Marxism. He studied it when he was in jail, uh, <laughs> jailed after 92 coup. And some of these, uh, you know, uh, there were these, uh, Marx, old line Marxists who kind of schooled him. Sure. In point of fact, I think Chavez was an agent of Castro when he did the original 92 coup. The conventional wisdom is that he did this coup against uh, Carlos Andres Pérez, a, a uh, uh, well, it wasn't against Pérez, but uh, in 92, uh, and Caldera. And he um, uh, it, it supposedly, uh, after he was released from jail, went for Cuba, was lionized by the revolution, and he got taken in by Castro. I think he was a, an agent of Castro mm -hmm. in 92, in the 92 coup. Uh, and... He had this uh, basis, this foundation yeah. of, of socialism. And, and a lot of the things he did uh, were very much to sort of level the playing field, to to take from the rich and give to the poor. Right. Uh, and it had that kind of uh, 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 foundation. And um, he also was a gangster. And I, w mm -hmm. I would submit that a lot of the socialists in our history are basically gangsters. No, I think that's right. Chavez. I mean, that's sort of the point I'm getting at. I'm not trying exactly. to like, make fun of no, conservatives no, 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 for calling it, it socialists. No, no. What we should point out is that the – that in – Absent constitutional and small r Republican rule of law constraints, the distinction between gangsterism and socialism is very, very slight. No, I agree. Right. With I mean, so like Stalin was behaved like Absolutely. a gangster and he was also the champion of useful idiot intellectuals around the world. Absolutely. You know? uh, the, 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 some, some more useful than, yes. than others. <laughs> um, the North Korean regime behaves explicitly like a mafia organization around one you know, Godfather, essentially. But the people call it socialism, fine. But the, my point is is that it's, Absolutely. it depends on what light you're looking and at. And it's not really that much of an intellectual leap from, you know, the, the state being able to take what it, what it, what it wants, mm -hmm. how it wants, and give to others. It's not, you know... It, right. When, once you get outside the, the guardrails of the rule of law and democracy, whatever ideological label you want to slap on it, it's all about whichever faction has the most power winning. Right, right. And, and speaking of socialism, you know, uh, they had a lot of socialism in in Venezuela before Chavez came along. Yeah, it was, and and frankly, all of the opposition figures now, including Juan Guaido, are from socialist parties. Yeah, uh, that worries me more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> than, than what whether or not uh, Chavez was a socialist is whether or not these people, if they actually get control of the government, will change the economy in kind of dramatic fundamental ways it's necessary to get it get, get it growing again are there any sort of 
free market guys, rule of law guys in the opposition that we know of? Uh, sure. There are uh, uh, people who think that way. Uh, uh, Maria Corina Machado is, is uh, not a guy, but is uh, someone mm-hmm. who thinks that way, definitely. And uh, and there are other a lot of other intellectuals who, who uh, libertarians, mm-hmm. uh, among the young, uh, young people in particular, by the way, who want to sort of uh, wipe the slate clean and, and start with economic freedom as a foundation. So yeah. there are those thinkers there, and, and we'll probably have an impact if, if we have... Uh, uh, if we do this right, they'll they'll, they'll they'll do some fundamental reforms of the economy if they if they take control. And so, what do, what do, what do we know about Guaido? I mean, like, what do we know about his thinking? How did he get to be the leader at fifty five at thirty five? Right, not not very. We don't know very very much about him. I uh, uh, he is uh, someone who's did the street fights, the youth movement, and and confronting the regime for a better part of a decade. Uh, so he's been, you know, he's a, he's a committed, committed, uh, luchador, struggler, uh, mm-hmm. fighter. But I think he was picked from obscurity precisely because he was obscure. Mm-hmm. That, uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who's the founder of his party, the Voluntad Popular, Popular Will. And he's the guy under house arrest? Yes, precisely. Yeah. He has been for four years. Uh, I, Leopoldo sees himself as the natural leader of the opposition. And I, I think when he was, pressed for someone because his his party this year has the rotating presidency so it was up to him to choose who it was mm-hmm. i think he picked guaido because he figured that he's a guy that wouldn't overshadow him mm-hmm. and 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 compete uh for him uh for natural leadership of the opposition that seems like a risky bet to me if you're under house arrest and you're not in front of the cameras and you're not seen as the at the leader of the barricades as it were um this well guaido has gone from Zero in the polls to fifty percent approval rating, and Leopold and, and ahead of Leopold or anybody else. Yeah, precisely because his name's out there, but more importantly because he's he's his face is out there. He's yeah, out there. He's a good looking guy. Yeah, he's yeah. Wa- he's. I mean, the picture of him wandering into these crowds yeah. uh, in a country with you know with with the basic lawlessness uh, is pretty impressive, and 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 so he's grown into that role. Uh, some people to, uh, were telling me, and people who know him well said, "Look, he's." He's a, you know, he's not going to try to go run past Leopoldo. He's going to follow his instructions. I said, no way. Once you get your second or third phone call from the vice president of the United States, you're going to say, hey, I can do this. Yeah. And that's precisely what's happened. And so just tell me a little bit about Leopoldo. Uh, what are his? Uh, Leopoldo Lopez is from an old uh, traditional political family, uh, descendant of Simon Bolivar, uh, who... Um, was a politician. I met him when he was in his twenties. Mayor of uh, of a suburb of Caracas, uh, political activist, founded his own political party, but uh, but you know ostensibly in in opposition to mm-hmm. to, to Chavez all along, all along those years, and was one of the first to kind of ring the alarm bells. This guy is. Uh, this guy's out of control, and he's going to, and he intends to make radical changes in in in, in society. So he he really earned his stripes by going to jail on camera, henchmen carrying him off to prison. And his wife led a campaign, Leon Tintori led an international campaign, very smart, human rights based campaign, uh, on behalf of of, of her husband. Uh, they're he's uh, they're both, I think, Kenyan. 
college graduates, <laughs> Harvard law, Harvard law, Harvard graduates. So you know they know their way around. Uh, uh, you know, how to appeal to the international community and all. Um, and beca- he became a very respected mm. op- opposition leader, even f- even from prison. And But you think in his heart, he's a Democrat, small Absolutely, no, okay. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's what, you know, these guys are uh, committed Democrats. That's what, that's what they've really grew up with. And if they haven't, if they didn't value those rights and the rule of law and separation of powers before, they certainly do now. And no, I have utmost respect and faith that they will do things very, very differently if they manage to to push Maduro aside. Okay. Before we get to that, we should get, hear from our first sponsor, Americans for Prosperity. Okay. As I said at the top of the show, this podcast is brought to you by Americans for Prosperity, specifically www.tradebuildsamerica.com. Who pays for tariffs? We do. Be good we get the sort of the stonecutter song from The Simpsons. Oh. Who pays for tariffs? We do. We do. So who pays for tariffs? We do. America's trade tariffs are not paid by foreign companies or foreign governments. Tariffs are taxes. And they are paid by American job creators when the goods they purchase enter the United States. And when businesses pass those taxes on to us, hardworking American families pay. It makes everything we buy more expensive, and it puts people out of work. America thrives with trade. When Americans are free to buy and sell with others, to drive the innovations and knowledge that create new technologies, our lives are better. It's time for Washington to support American consumers by breaking down protectionist barriers. Learn how you can help at www.tradebuildsamerica.com. So about removing Maduro, the conventional wisdom seems to be whichever way the generals goes, so goes everything else, right? How is is that right? And how is that process going? No, I think that's not right. uh, Because the generals, you have the regular army, Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say 80% of those folks wouldn't lift a finger to help Maduro, Mm -hmm. but neither would they lift a finger necessarily against him without orders. Mm -hmm. The people who give those orders are splitting up about $2 billion in cocaine revenue every year. And Maduro can uh, buy them off. The Cubans have them wired for sound for the last eight or nine years, Uh, you know, Cubans doing training and with the military, so the, uh, they know what to expect from that military. Anybody that's a free thinker has been sidelined a long time ago, and they've even in the last six or seven months detected coup plotting and jailed and mm-hmm. uh, hundreds of people and, to- and tortured tortured them to make an example of them, really, really in in, in dreadful ways. Um, so that's the army. And, uh, so without any real leadership that's doing any free thinking, the, the, the this, this gangsterism is dominates really the security forces, the national guard deeply involved in narco trafficking and repression. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also have these militias and, and gangs kind of modeled on the Basige mm-hmm. gangs that move around and, and, and repress people. And those people, have the arms and the resources uh, uh, to keep a lid on the internal uh, internal unrest. So you never really have to call on the army at this point. 
necessarily to to to, to repress people. So they're never going to be called on to make that choice. Right. Do I do I fight for Maduro or not? And then of course the they have this troika at the top, uh, Maduro and his wife, Tarek al Asami, the former vice president, who's, uh, you know, these crazy ties going back, you know, decades uh, uh, to Middle Eastern radicals and does business with Hezbollah and all that. And Diosdado Cabello, sort of a traditional henchman uh, who's probably, you know, closer to the army and to the Chavez tradition mm-hmm. than than uh, than the others. So uh, those guys, until they feel their position uh, uh, threatened, uh, they're going to hang in there. And let's face it, they, they have these Cuban advisors, you know, probably 15,000, 20,000 Cuban advisors, including at the very, very top, that have been watching Uncle Sam's trigger finger for 60 years. Yeah. And I'm sure that the message they've gotten at the top is, you know, calm down. Right. Uh, the Americans are not moving. Um, now, I, I don't see how they think they can hold off these sanctions, these rel- relentless sanctions, uh, where, the, where the Trump administration tightened them uh, by preventing Sitco from repatriating uh, cash to, to Venezuela. Now, they've, they've stolen probably $350 billion, so they can start... Uh, Eating into their nest egg if they mm-hmm. need to, to ha- hold on to power, but but at this point, I, uh, it, it remains to be seen whether they're, they're the you know uh, you know aircraft carriers appearing off the coast or this relentless drumbeat uh, entices, well convinces them that it's better to sort of try to cut their losses. And there are different scenarios and what will happen there don't necessarily produce real change. So we have to be super careful about. Uh, about what we settle for in terms of transition. How many of the generals, if they are removed from power, are going to be open to crimes against humanity and and international criminal court stuff? I mean, is that part of the difficulty of getting, aside from the, you know, sweet cocaine profits, mm-hmm. um, is that part of the equation? Is like the exit? There, you have to make the exit strategy seem at least a little attractive. Right. One thing to be able to retire. Right. With your profits, take your chips off the table and say, well, that was a good run. Now, you know, I'm gone. Um, but if you think that you're going to be in the dock in The Hague if you st- if you relinquish power, it doesn't matter how much you'd like to actually get out of there anyway, right? Well, uh, from what I've been told, uh, by the way, there are 2,000 generals. There are more uh-huh. generals in Venezuela than there are in all the NATO countries. <laughs> Uh, they, they don't they don't go away, right? And, and it's it's a way of control, keeping them sure. you know uh, at the table so they can collect their winnings. Uh, I would say the vast majority of them are involved in cr- criminality. Uh, a good, but but a smaller directly involved a smaller group directly involved in repression. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the National Guard folks and, and that sort of thing. And they're the, that's why the opposition led with an amnesty mm-hmm. and uh, have been flogging this, you know, uh, take your winnings and, and go. Uh, uh, you know, you don't have to go down with Maduro. Uh, and so they, they, this has been happening, you know, very publicly. You even see Senator Rubio every you know, twice a day, yeah. tweeting about an amnesty and telling these guys, naming names, uh, for example, of the six service chiefs, 
uh, and uh, and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Venezuela, naming them by name, saying, look, you don't have to go uh, down with Maduro and you shouldn't and there's an amnesty available to you. The problem is half of those, or actually f- all but one of those really, is involved in either narco-trafficking or human rights violations. So mm. they have to make a, a decision on whether they can trust uh, right. an amnesty. Yeah, and then the, the other the other important part of this is who shows up on the American radar screen, because you know as, uh, U.S. attorneys don't know from amnesty. Right, uh, that's just not the way they play. And so those the people that at the very very top know they're uh, in the in the uh, uh, crosshairs of American prosecutors, and they're much more likely to try to hang in there and, until someone uh, knocks on their door. But as a matter of, I mean. The president of the United States is the head of the Justice Department. We could sign off on an amnesty, right? I mean, we're well. I think it would be very problematical yeah. for the from the for the uh, uh, president of the United States, and I would say particularly this one. Yeah, uh, is, is from what I understand. Traditionally, the, the, you know, as a foreign policy matter, you can do individual uh, pardons and things mm-hmm. of that nature. For example, in an ignominious way. Uh, Obama freed uh, a convicted murderer and spy as part of his rapprochement with Castro. Right. Uh, and, and, and so that sort of thing could happen. But the idea really of a blanket amnesty for these folks, I think it would be uh, groundbreaking and controversial if yeah. we were to try to do that sort of thing. I think what people are probably thinking is let's get them out of power, take away their army, and then our prosecutors can go one at a time. Yeah. So how do you think this plays out? I mean, where 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 are we going to go from here? Well, it's difficult to see these guys hanging on, frankly. And I that I that I understand. But they we're also underestimating the, their own sense of security because precisely because the United States uh in their view will not Move militarily against them, yeah, and and they and they, and they also have constructed an incredibly complicated uh, terrain mm-hmm. with with, with uh, probably one hundred and fifty thousand people with guns. Yeah. Uh, now I think people giggle about these videos of little uh, matronly ladies walk, walking with their red scarfs and their rifles, but you know, fifty little ladies with rifles is a big mess yeah, yeah, yeah. for a lot of people. If, yeah. if if for no other reason. The violence that'll, that'll ensue in, in, among amongst the population there, but we're talking about uh, those those well trained gangs, uh, the militias, uh, Colombian guerrillas, probably fifteen thousand guerrillas in the south right now that are occupying themselves with cocaine trafficking and all that, that, that could become a, a long standing problem for us moving militarily. So it's a very complicated target. And uh, frankly, the last, certainly in the Obama years, but I've heard even in the last two years, there hasn't been real planning at the Pentagon mm-hmm. against this target. Now we're working with an international coalition, the Brazilians and the Colombians. Of those, really, uh, of the countries that would be willing to do something uh, in a, as a part of a multinational force behind a humanitarian mission, mm-hmm. uh, where, where, the, where the mission is basically to deliver food and medicine, you know, they really don't have much experience with this. But Colombians would have the most experience. So it, it is a very complicated target. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so uh, it, it's going to take a lot more uh, pressure uh, against their fortunes. 
uh, and that that's underway now. Uh, I think we need to uh, you know start look, doing some planning uh, for a multinational force that can at least go in and deliver food mm-hmm. and to start to impose its will on these on these people and then we needed to go retail against some of these general officers uh to get to them to communicate with them that, it, that it's time for them to make a move but it's going to be really really very complicated we get we have to get very tough with the cubans yeah they're the intellectual authors really of this uh at this stage uh and you know alexander Haig said at one point in the central america conflict uh we may have to go to the source mm-hmm Quite frankly, Cuba would be an easier target than Venezuela. Yeah, and uh, and the Cubans need to understand, be made to understand that we're not fooling around on this thing. Couldn't I mean? I, and I'm just spitballing here, but um, and as much as I am not a big fan of whipping up nativist sentiment or any of that kind of stuff, wouldn't it? And maybe this is going on, but wouldn't it be a good card to play for Guaido and these guys to say, you know, um, to play the sort of populist card against the cubans these string pullers are here they're manipulating our government they're they're expropriating our riches they're uh controlling you know they do they play that card in latin america all the time against america right why not play it against cuba they they certainly should uh and and it's a very potent uh because a lot of people in south america don't like the cubans very much they they certainly don't when they see what they're up to, you yeah, know, and you see them up close. It's something you know. Maybe they they've had this romantic right. They have the idea of Cuba, where, you know, but not but up close. It's a, it's a mess, uh, and 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 you've seen there are, there there are anecdotal confrontations between Venezuelan and Cuban uh, military mm-hmm. because they go about giving orders, yeah, uh, and sometimes they get pistol whipped (laughs) for getting a little bit too out of control but the cubans uh uh you know are riding for a fall here Mm -hmm. uh and the problem with this is as we move from the abstract to the specific is that guaido has publicly said the cubans can stay Mm -hmm. so uh, the cubans can stay uh they just have to change their attitude well, you know, this is laughable yeah. to most Venezuelans. Uh, and it's just, you know, he's not, he's precisely not doing that. Yeah. He's not playing the card of nationalism, saying that the Cubans have busted out our country like gangsters bust out a pizza joint. Yeah. And we want them out of this country. And you'll have to get there, I think, before they start feeling the heat. That's, I would say, that's one of the things I'm looking for is when the Cubans start evacuating. Yeah. In any kind of numbers, then we'll know that this thing is falling apart. How good is our – I mean, I know Marco Rubio has been doing some heroic stuff. How good is our ability to actually communicate or the outside world's ability to communicate with with Venezuelans on the ground? Is it – I would say it's – I would say it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, You know, your social media does – uh, work there. As a matter of fact, Venezuelans are among the biggest consumers in the world, populace, in terms of percentage of population of social media. So they are able to communicate. So the images of the blocked highways preventing food from getting in, right. the average Venezuelans see that, right? I would think so, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just start historically, starvation is a wonderful motivator of crowds to do amazing things. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I don't, like crowds i don't like starvation i'm not saying anything sure. but like if you just look at what had happened in france in 1848 1868 you know all all those kinds of things hunger 
plays a huge role. You would think if you were if you saw your kids wasting away, absolutely. I'm, but but there has to be a reason why these enormous crowds haven't turned into mobs. Well, right? think, think about also the fact that the soldiers don't have any. They get one meal a day, a lot yeah. of them, except for the elite units, and they have to go home uh, on weekends to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're and and they go home and hear from grandma and and the wife and and the kids are not getting food and so and their neighbors and the key people they knew from high school all that kind of stuff. and yeah. by the way yeah. don't wear your uniform out because you'll mm-hmm. get chewed up so there is that even among among the military i think it was a blunder uh, for maduro to block that aid that way mm-hmm. uh now they've made a calculation that just hold on uh you know hold firm uh, I, you know, I think they could have played it differently. Uh, take the food and say, "Look, they took Sitco. We're taking this food," uh, and and, tr- and and take credit for, mm-hmm. for moving it through, and and try to create some space to where the weak links within the opposition say, "Well, let's negotiate an election," mm-hmm. and that that sort of thing, and get get there. I think that kind of confrontation, uh, particularly since the United States is able to, you know, with our Colombian friends and our uh, Brazilian friends, open up other border crossings and are they going to replicate this all over the over the country and at the point where they have to start deploying the military to keep the food out and you know the regular army that I was talking about mm-hmm. then it gets precarious and, uh, so I, I think it was a mistake for them to 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 do that but I, I guess they they figured if we let the food in and Guaido is standing on these container shipments and saying, I'm the new president and I brought you this food, mm-hmm. uh, that, that that was a, more difficult for them to control. Now, I understand, uh, you know, friends of mine who know military and, and air power logistics tell me that it's not exactly a target-rich environment for a Berlin airlift-style thing. But is there any – is there any angle where – I mean the propaganda value is probably more valuable than the actual number of people that you would feed. But it just seems to me that if there were shots of parachuted – just parachute drops of rice and beans and food and medicine uh, in a climate of social media, that would be – first of all, it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. right, on a humanitarian purpose. And yeah. um, whenever your foreign policy can be lined up with the morally right thing to do, it's a very good thing. Um, I don't mean to go wax to neocon here, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but the propaganda value of it, in the best sense of the word, would be enormously valuable. Is there any version of that that could be done? I, I, of course, there is, and some. And these things are always more complicated than they than they seem. For example, uh, you have they have an air defense, and, right? And and so you would have to be pretty muscular uh, to basically say. We're going to deliver this aid, and we should see no choppers, and we mm-hmm. should see no aircraft in the air, or they're going to be dealt with. Yeah. So and so, but having said that, I always said a while back that sure you have to have we're going to have to get more muscular. Mm-hmm. Even if they could do a humanitarian corridor, try to build. Uh, I hope they are doing that some of that now. Some support with their fifty country coalition to say. We need to push in and deliver uh, aid in certain population centers. Yeah. There's parts of the country where uh, the, op- the regime is particularly uh, un- uh, unpopular. And so if we were to start to do that, 
uh, it's probably a, a achievable objective yeah. uh, militarily in defending our forces and defending the deliveries and sending a really a, a devastating blow against the regime. So I, I would think that that is on the radar screen. But I, I, my concern is a lot of this has been uh, tactics. It's just a string of tactics. Yeah. And Not without someone thinking more broadly. And, and uh, so – but I would hope that that is something that is – I asked uh, Marco Rubio about that uh, sort of scenario yesterday. And um, to the extent that he's kind of managing these things, he gave an answer that, well, we should be looking at those things as mm. those options as, as a possibility. So maybe he is can kind of push the planning forward. Um, yeah, it just, it just seems sort of obviously intuitively correct that images of – us or Guaido's people, I don't care, right? Unloading tanker trucks of rice and milk and baby formula mm-hmm. in a climate where social media can get stuff out, just hugely beneficial because if you're starving and you're looking at that and then you ha- listen to Maduro saying, don't pay attention to the people getting fed, right. um, that's just a bad politics. You right. know. And I, I should say that the administration folks that I talked to saw this scenario where he would block the aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they might uh, have uh, overestimated is how uh, how weak that would make them if they were to block the aid. Yeah. Uh, clearly, they have to think to next steps. Certainly, the regime and the Cuba and their Cuban handlers are thinking yeah. uh, down the road in terms of various scenarios. So, just I mean, I'm curious about it. When was the last time there was a U.S. senator that was basically running? so much of a foreign policy shop out of their office like this. I mean, it's just weird. You hear people talking about how, I mean, you, you said some phrasing like, you know, Marco Rubio is putting all of this together. That's, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Well, I mean, Jesse Helms did all sorts of interesting things right. in the 80s. Senator Helms was doing, yeah, he, he was standing with certain groups, uh, but basically defending them against uh, the State Department yeah. and communists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But Fun this times. Is, this is much more proactive. This is much more proactive role of the senator. But and and I don't want to uh, wreck my relationships with these folks. But uh, you know, the senator, I basically put Mauricio Clavercaroni in the job as senior director mm-hmm. at, the, at the NSC. He's a guy that's well known to all of us, and and and, and, and is an experienced guy who, uh, who was a Trump guy. Came in early over at Treasury, and they brought him over to the NSC. And uh, then you have Carlos Trujillo, who's another Rubio uh, compadre, uh, who, uh, I was going to say acolyte, but that sounds a little bit too <laughs> demeaning, but uh, another, uh, you know, Rubio friend who was mm-hmm. at the OAS, this ambassador to the OAS, and really ran for daylight on this, on the Venezuela issue, because precisely because the OAS Secretary General was there running with him. Mm-hmm. And so those folks are basically pushing this, and John Bolton, my experience is, uh, you know, favors action. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's, they're getting plenty of that. So the uh, – uh, we're both friends, former colleagues with John Bolton, all mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to – admittedly, I would see him more in the Fox green room than I saw him here at AEI. But, mm-hmm. you know, still – and one of the things I'm always – like Bolton's one of the few guys – and you can decline to answer or answer as diplomatically as you like. But uh, Bolton's one of the few guys who you can actually do Kremlinology with because he's he's a such an institutional player, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so I remember during the early part of the North Korea negotiations, he had set, started saying on the Sunday shows that we're really looking at the Libyan model. <laughs> yes, <absolutely>. And <laughs> everyone who knew what he was talking absolutely. about was, yeah, I, I, he was I, trying I, to kill something there, mm-hmm. right? You know, and mm-hmm. uh, the North Koreans remember what happened to Gaddafi. Uh, that scene in the press briefing room where he had the 5,000 troops mm-hmm. written on his yellow legal pad. Mm-hmm. I'll just ask it as an open-faced question. What did you make of that? Was that an inadvertent mistake where he just happened to be carrying that pad in and was caught on camera? I am not sure what 5,000 troops in in Colombia would do. I mean, uh-huh. uh, we went into Grenada with 7,300. Uh-huh. We went into Panama for 25,000 people, uh, and we had nearby air, air, air bases yeah. uh, in Panama. Uh, if he had put a 25, I would have thought maybe he was uh, signaling. In this case, uh, you know, I, they're going to have to pro- forward deploy some forces yeah. uh, in the region to protect our embassy, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, uh, it, it might very well have se- uh, been intended to send a message. But, you know, our Cuban enemies mm-hmm. uh, know what the numbers would really look like. Right. And they would know if there was planning going on and that sort of thing. And so they probably made short work of that. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. That's that's a good answer, actually. Um, so going back to the idea of the mob, right? I mean, you have these crowds in Caracas with, I don't know, 50, 100,000 people, whatever the numbers are. I oh, don't yes. know, right? But that turns angry and they mm-hmm. just start running after the presidential right. palace. Does the National Guard or the militias, do they just start Tiananmen, Tiananmen squaring these people, shooting them in the streets? There, I think there's – by the way, the number's probably well over 300,000. Yeah, I, was just, I couldn't remember what it was. But, but uh, just thinking about it. But they put more – many, many more uh, on the streets in the past. And, they, and they've also done like 30-day, 40-day offensives mm-hmm. where they're fighting with – the, the, the security forces. I bring that up to say that both sides kind of know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And and so that includes the regime deciding to leave them alone, let them have their day. And they're and, and, and calling off the cops, calling off their gangs, uh, not creating that kind of thing, pushing, which would be a provocation, you would think. Mm-hmm from the international community if they were to start to massacre people. Point of fact, in 2017 cycle, they killed about 400 people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a – the regime may be kind of holding back on, on that. Now, I do I, – you know, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical about whether there will be a rebellion from the military push starting this thing, mm-hmm. sparking this thing. I do not uh, – I, I think a much more likely scenario is precisely these crowds on the border – Saying that enough is enough, mm-hmm. you know, and with there, the people out there are are there because they're looking for food. They're maybe on their way to Columbia to look to find food and, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, you could see that sort of thing happening as kind of spontaneous uprising. And then the, maybe the local forces saying, "Look, we're not going to repress these people." Mm-hmm. And you start to see a crisis grow. Uh, that is that is a distinct possibility. And then the military uh, might. When they hear about all of this thing playing out, might take a, uh, a stronger hand, uh, and then it gets very complicated for the regime when that, when that sort of thing starts sure. to happen. So I I think the there that's what they're watching very closely uh, are the crowds. But think about this: in 2014 and 2017 uprisings, 
a lot of the people that led those uprisings are either in jail now mm. or they're in exile. Mm. I mean, I have, I have very specific friends in mind who were out on the street for 30, 40 days, uh, you know, on this street battle with the, with the, uh, with the regime thugs and they're not, they're in exile now. Mm -hmm. And so, that's what the those are the kinds of things that they're looking that the the regime folks are looking at very closely mm -hmm. uh, is how to handle the crowds and and but it, it may be beyond control after a certain point. Yeah, so just, just desperation. Just this know. rule of thumb: really hungry crowds of hundreds of thousands of people are hard to manage. It right, seems obvious to me. All right, so uh, on how the administration has handled this, it does seem strikingly well done and well managed uh you said at the beginning that that trump was clear about where he wanted to go with all this kind of stuff do you think he's actually engaged on a regular basis on this or is this one of these things where it's being well done in part because trump has successfully outsourced it to people who are getting their ducks in a row in the right way and he's not big footing over it um, my impression is he's played the, just the role that he should uh-huh uh, the all options on the table thing give a lot of people the heebie-jeebies in, in the 50 sure. country coalition. But quite frankly, that's the kind of thing that that you have to say is an important yeah. is an important message down there. And to the extent that they start to believe it, uh, it gets real tricky. But I think he's uh, my impression is that Bolton's got this. Mm. Uh, he's he's got it. He's got a team that he trusts. And they have this uh, team now at uh, the State Department under Elliot Abrams. It's uh, I, I think that's there. There are there are pros that are carrying this out. Yeah. But uh, what I want to see more of, frankly, is what is their overall strategy beyond? Uh, you know, we used to say hope is not a is not a strategy. Right. And uh, and and so uh, expecting a bunch of guys to flip. Uh, you know, maybe hoping for too much from yeah. from these these gangsters. Just one last question about the you know how we got here. Uh, you know, we talked about how Maduro and before that Chavez sort of ruined Venezuela. But foreign policy wise, you know, what role does the Obama or or frankly the Bush the first Bush uh, George W Bush administration which did back an attempted coup what in 2002 briefly well we we I was actually there so we didn't really back the coup but maybe some people think we should have but uh, well we sort of didn't we there was a coup attempt in 2002 right uh, and um, the impression was that the US gave tacit support uh-huh uh and frankly, it was Condoleezza Rice who kind of signaled that, but the coup had already failed by then. Uh -huh. So I, I think it's somewhere in the handbook that if you're going to back a coup, wait, wait, wait until it's done. <laughs> yeah, okay, so but why don't you give me just a sense about how we got to the mess that Donald Trump inherited? Well, look, uh, in, in I mentioned 2005 as the year when they really went whole hog into the into the narco business. Uh -huh. And to where you now have a narco state and, and uh, you know, people at the very top, including the president's family, directly involved in shipping cocaine to the United States and Europe. We should have put some red lines mm. along the way. And I, I think it's remarkable the degree to which the Obama administration turned to uh, – uh, was malignantly passive in, in dealing with this growing threat. Uh, they could have drawn some red lines. They could have 
done a better job of getting a hold of some of these gangsters that were in custody of our Colombian allies, in custody of Curacao, and they let them send them back to Venezuela. We could have gotten a hand uh, ha- handle on this issue a lot early. And then I think President Trump's folks have inherited a, a CIA that's basically blind to what's going on there, mm-hmm. has no operational capacity and apparently very little collection against that target. The folks that have done a pretty good job is the DEA, and they pressed a lot of cases, including looking at Hezbollah activities, and uh, the Obama administration purposefully discouraged them from looking at those threats. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a lot was of what... because of the Iran deal? Was precisely. That, because yeah. they, they wanted to keep it cool with Venezuela because Venezuela was playing a role in the Colombian peace process and because they were doing this rapprochement with Havana. So they wanted to make Cuba look like it was not a, it was not causing problems for us. Uh, and same with what the Iranians were up to, laundering tens of billions of dollars to evade sanctions, th- laundering it through Venezuelan banks. Uh, so th- they deserve a lot of responsibility. It's really been uh, – it's a horrible legacy mm-hmm. uh, in Colombia, in, in Central America, where these – where we were talking about these countries as – as economic partners 10 years ago when we had did CAFTA and the Obama administration said as they were, these uh, countries were picked apart by narco-traffickers and, and gangsters and, and now we end up with their mendicant nations and they're pushing their refugees to our southwest border. So the Obama legacy is really pretty bad and, yeah. and in Venezuela it's, it's, it's pronounced. You, they couldn't have done a, a better job of aiding and abetting uh, this threat uh, if they had done so intentionally. Yeah. All right. So good. Roger, that was great. My pleasure. I appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks for Hope coming I didn't on. Bore you too much. Okay. So, uh, Roger Noriega has left the building and full disclosure to, um, our listeners, uh, Jack left the building for, or at least left the studio for a little while too, because I immediately had to get off, uh, or get on the glop podcast, which we recorded between the time Roger left and, we're recording this, so it's a little less fresh in my head, but, but the Glop podcast was spectacular. So please tune into that. Um, wow, this is kind of a crossover, but not really. It's, it's, it's strange. You're the only common factor. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a dreamscape world that we live in. Yeah. Um, what'd you think of all that? The Venezuela stuff? Uh, what did I think? So Venezuela is a sad case. Also, Hugo Chavez was the first. Well, no, he wasn't the first. I'm, I'm trying to think of my political memories growing up of the first uh, foreign leader that I disliked. And I guess it would have been Saddam Hussein. Because uh, I remember getting excited when he was captured in his in his little hole. Um, but anyway, Hugo Chavez is bad too. And he, he, Christopher Hitchens, and Vaclav Havel all died right around the same time. It was kind of weird. Hmm. A weird trio, those three. Uh, two of the three make sense together, but then there was Hugo Chavez too. But yeah, I'm, but I, I'm glad that we have at AEI people who can discourse eloquently upon these things and perhaps change them. I don't know what he's what he's doing on the side, but who knows? Maybe he'll end up. Uh, no, he's not. They probably wouldn't accept him as president, but. Maybe he'll create a puppet regime that'll allow us to air remnants from Venezuela whenever we want. One can only hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, I kind of was sorely tempted to go off on a political theory digression about how 
which I did a little bit about how gangsterism and socialism have so much in common. Um, well, isn't that the uh, – in modern age or modern times, excuse me, the Paul Johnson book doesn't – isn't that one of the chapters about uh, – the rise of gangster government or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's, a, there's a specific passage in which uh, Paul Johnson writes about how well the uh, the leaders of the Soviet government and the, the Nazi German government got along, at least at first. They like met – there was one point where they met and they were like all chummy and like, oh, yeah, I've killed 10,000 people. Oh, I've killed 20,000. Yeah. Oh, really? Wow. How, what was that like? Well, that's the thing. I mean there's sort of like – again, once – once you get out of uh, the rule of impersonal institutions, which by which I mean once you get out of a system of the rule of law that is blind to the power or the position or the status of somebody, right? That's the whole point of a rule of law is that a billionaire who commits murder can go to jail just as much as a poor person who commits murder can go to jail, or at least that's how it's supposed to work. Now who's being naive? Right. Well, <laughs> but the th- that's the point is that that you are so, you know, whether you want to call it identity politics or or just sort of oligarchy or whatever, the law is supposed to be blind to irrelevant aspects of your status or power and just care about the specific facts. Right. This is the thing we got into with with Noah Rothman last week about social justice. Social justice says, no, 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 no. You have to take everything into account. And that old-fashioned, just plain justice, which just cares about what you did and whether you were allowed to do it and what are the sort of maybe mitigating factors behind it, you're now supposed to judge people based upon all of these other things. That, whatever label you want to put on it, you know, is is basically just the rule of men rather than the rule of law. And it kind of reminds me – I did a piece for a magazine years ago uh, about Sons of Anarchy, the biker gang uh, TV show, which I really liked mostly for the the really gratuitous nudity and violence. And um, and there's this, this point to it, which is that once you get outside the law, all contests are determined by violence, even even minor contests because there's no – neutral arbiter about how to settle things so it's violence or force or or money to some extent and so you know gangsterism and socialism it's just to me it's really interesting how similar the rules are for both about you know co-opting your enemies buying off your enemies killing those who don't go along you know saddam hussein used to have that slogan um no head no problem (laughs) um and uh I, I'm sure Stalin had a phrase like that. I'm sure Hitler had a phrase like that, you know, and, uh, you can get into all of these angels on a head of a pin arguments about the different ideologies that these guys represented. But at the end of the day, it's about a big man, uh, doing as much as he can get away with. Um, just like this podcast. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I, I would have liked more, um, John Boltonology. <laughs> maybe maybe we should do a podcast just on John Bolton. Like, what's up with the mustache, the early years, the Florida recount? Um, it, w- it would be kind of weird to do this without his involvement, wouldn't it? I mean, who would you get? It's arrangeable. I mean, I, I, I know John. I just think it could be kind of fun. Just put him on the spot, you know? Or maybe not. I don't know. I just – he's – of the characters in the Trump White House – 
he's one of the few I actually find kind of fascinating about how he's maneuvering and trying to get his policy objectives done in that climate. And the thing is, in that White House, there are very few people who are as good at bureaucracy as Bolton is. So it's not surprising to me that he's end running around a lot of people. Um, I, I, I say none of this as a matter of criticism. I've kind of, I'm, I've always been in, sort of in awe of his ability to do some of this stuff. Whether you agree with the, the actual policy stuff, he's he's a little bit like I don't know. I mean, Rahm Emanuel is not a good example, but there are certain people who just know how to work the system from within to get results, and he's just one of those guys. I can think of comparisons, but none of them. It's flattering, so I won't mention them. Fair enough, fair enough. Oh, speaking of other A, so we're on the topic of friends who are current or former AI colleagues. Uh, uh, we should um, give a little plug to our friend and outgoing uh, maximum leader. Outgoing in both senses of the word. Yes, Arthur Brooks. Uh, Arthur, as people may or may not know, is uh, going to be the former president of AI. I'm not exactly sure what the official date is. July, I think. I think it's in July. And uh, Robert Doerr is coming in as the new president, and, and Robert is a is a, a wonderful and wise man, and we'll just leave it there. Um, but what is returning is <clears throat> the Arthur Brooks Show, which is his much more produced podcast than this podcast, which is distributed on the Vox Media Podcast Network. And uh, they asked if we could give a little announcement for it, and we're happy to do it. On February 14th, that's this Valentine's Day, AI President Arthur Brooks returns with a new season of the Arthur Brooks Podcast. The season takes a multifaceted approach to understanding love, that elixir most responsible for our happiness, but which, but to which we often pay far too little attention. Featuring episodes on topics such as the decline of romantic entrepreneurship in America, interesting, our longing for friendship in an age of loneliness, our widespread dissatisfaction with work, and even how to love our enemies, which, by the way, is the subject of Arthur's newest book, which you can pre-order now. The season reveals both why we need love and how we can get more of it in all areas of our lives. Tell me about it. <laughs> didn't didn't hear anything about Bigfoot erotica in that description. Well, we're going to have him on the podcast fairly soon. We can ask him about it. <laughs> I don't think I'm comfortable asking him about it. I don't. I'm too lowly on the totem pole around here. Yeah, but look, he's he's handed off the ball and scepter of power. We can ask him anything now. But um, he's he still has it. True, true. But, you know, <laughs> on the way out, what's he going to do? Alternatively, that that could maximize his incentive to do to do whatever he wants. I mean, there are two ways of looking at it. On a completely different note, I watched – I was listening to the recent episode of the Editor's Podcast and Michael Brendan Doherty brought up some – a piece on National Review about uh, – by Armand White about a movie called Brawl in Cell Block 99. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, I think I'm – is this – is is Vince Vaughn in this movie? Vince Vaughn's in it, yeah. And I think Paul. I know about the movie. I'm not sure if I read that review. Yeah, I don't want to talk about the review. I, 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 so I watched the movie because Doherty was really intrigued by it and um, and so was Armand White. And I figured, okay. And, and I like I, – oddly, I like prison movies. Um, 
Usually women's prison movies. Well, for different reasons. But I also like just prison. I mean, I've become more interested in prison stuff for a while. I actually like to do a podcast on prisons um, because um, what's his name? David Sparrick? Sparrick? Yeah. Um, He wrote this great piece about prisons and it's where – there's a great book about it. And uh, we should put a link to the actual title of the book. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. But it was from him partly because of a podcast he did with Russ Roberts that I got – all caught up in the Mansur Olson stationary bandit theory about where nation, where the state comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I think is sort of fascinating about prisons is that that's one of these places where human nature reverts back to more of its natural patterns because it is a, it is a state of nature in a lot of prisons, right? It is where there is no noble savage. There is no uh, – that if you were alone without a tribe or, or some sort of coalition, uh, you're in big trouble. And so you have these sort of naturally forming, essentially, uh, you know, tribes in the form of prison gangs that police themselves, even come up in some cases with their own constitutions. Anyway, so I like I like prison. That's a, that was a digression. Um, well, what did you think of the movie? The movie, you kind of at the end of it, you feel like Ron Burgundy saying, wow, that escalated quickly <laughs> <laughs> because it starts really slow about the, you think it's about this sort of down on his luck sort of white working class guy who's just trying to make ends meet and before you know it it is a gruesomely violent um uh almost straight up uh you know exploitation movie um uh what was the movie with Kurt Russell that came out not the bone grindhouse no, not Grindhouse, but there was another one, uh, bone, something about these sort of almost another species of Native Americans who lived in the desert who just just tore apart uh, all these like uh, this posse coming for them. I saw it in a theater. I can't remember its name right now, but um, it was made by the same guy and Jiminy Jillikers. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of, of uh, hardcore serious violence in it and uh and it's kind of interesting to see so armand white thinks it's almost like argues it's 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 a satirical look at something or a parody i gotta go back and reread his thing i didn't want to read it before i saw the movie but it stuck with me i mean it's stuck it's it's been in my head for a few days um so there's that well it's It's on amazon prime for those who are interested it's because uh vince vaughn is a fan of yours he is. He is. Or, you know, we're, we're pre- we, we were pretty friendly. I haven't talked to him in a while, but... Um, he, he blurbed Tyranny of Clichés? He blurbed Tyranny of Clichés. I went to his house for a party lunch, which was weird. Um, and, oh, I didn't know that. Is, is there anything you wanna, you're willing to tell me about that other than that you went to his house to, for a party? Uh, I was on a L- Liberty Fund conference where we were talking about comparing the New Deal to the financial crisis. And, or I was on it. Vince Vaughn was not on it. And, uh, <laughs> I wasn't on it either. And I was in high school at the time. Uh, my buddy Nick Schultz, uh, used to be at AI, uh, he was there and I got in touch with Vince Vaughn and, and, and a buddy of his who's sort of the guy who introduced us. And, um, uh, who's the guy from, um, God, my brain is just fried from, uh, Arrested Development and, and Ozark. Uh, Jason Bateman. Yeah. So, 
we go to this house in the Hollywood Hills and there's Jason Bateman in the pool. Um, <laughs> and we show up in jacket and tie, which is like not done in L.A. Yeah, West Coast is very anti-fancy. Yeah. And we hung out at a pool party. And um, But it, it's funny. Like I had coffee once for like four hours with – with Vince Vaughn in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel lobby and just to see teenage what 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 young women do around like as tourists in an open place I mean there was no like you know hotel room keys or underwear or any of that kind of stuff but just like people like in the distance pointing taking out their phones taking pictures it was all it was pretty wild because like I don't hang out with that kind of crowd too much uh, now you're stuck with me most of the time and I'm not famous yet yet that's right. All right. So what else do we have um, to cover? I don't think we have – NRI. NRI. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Um, this podcast was also brought to you by the National Review Institute and its 2019 Ideas Summit at the Mandarin Oriental in Washington, D.C. on uh, March 28th and 29th. Uh, this biennial conference will feature a powerful and diverse lineup of speakers, including many of your favorite National Review writers, representing the very best that the conservative movement has to offer. The 2019 theme is The Case for the American Experiment, with a focus on American exceptionalism and the country's resilience and economic recovery. For more information and to, reg and to register, please visit www.nrinstitute.org, uh, Spaces Limited, so reserve your seat today. I hope to see you in Washington this spring. Okay. So um, thank you, everybody. We passed the 3,000 review mark, and it, it hasn't changed our life, but we want to keep – we want to get to 5,000. We got a lot of great feedback on the Dan Hannon um, podcast, although I got some criticism for criticizing him in absentia, which was not really my goal. I was just – well, that, that – First of all, you kind of goaded me. Yeah, that was kind of my fault, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Well, I'm perfectly happy to blame you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm a poor stand-in for him anyway. My my British accent is much worse. Yes, that's – um, that is what they uh, call in social science a, a true fact. <laughs> um, Although I wish – so one thing I want I, – I, I don't think I've ever done this, but I, I, I wish that you had asked him to try an American accent because I'm very curious – I mean, we Americans have a sense of of what a British accent should sound like, which is mostly like the received pronunciation, like a posh gentleman. Sort of BBC English. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I, I'm just curious what in, what a British person thinks an American accent is. I mean, do they think it's a southern accent? Do they think it's sort of how I talk, like Midwestern neutral? Yeah. Do they think it's a like a Boston Mid Red Sox fan? Midwestern neutral robot. Is I think what they call you. Isn't. Uh, <laughs> that's, what, that's what you just called me. Uh, I'm just curious about that. And I would like to see one of them try to do it. I see. I mean, I see it in movies occasionally, and British actors are they're on they're on a spectrum as to who, who is good at it and who is not. There's an astounding number of British actors. I mean, this 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 it almost straight up bothers me how many British actors are taking jobs American actors could do. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it was. And it's every now and then, you, like you get blindsided where you see an interview with somebody and you find out that Stringer Bell from The Wire, you know, is Idris Ilba, has <laughs> a British accent, or yeah, yeah. Um, or also uh, McNulty from The Wire has a British accent, and um, uh, <laughs> portraying the urban grid of Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, it's like, but like you start looking around, and it's it's 
Um, British like, pod people everywhere. It's all over the place, and it, it's infuriating to me. And I guess it's just because they care about more about accents. What I always am sort of fascinated by is like, does a Australian accent sound worse, sort of more, more egregious to the British ear than an American accent? Hmm. Well, I mean, this is a plot point in the King's Speech. See, uh, I never actually watched the King's Speech. I fell asleep watching the King's Speech, but I got through that part where where the Brits were making fun of uh, Lionel Logue, I think was his name, the Australian speech therapist who uh, and ends up educating, was it George V, I think, to get over his stutter. They make fun of him for his Australian accent. Uh-huh. But this was in 1942 or whatever it was. Yeah. And now, uh, so who knows? I don't know. I, I could see that may- being the case that... My understanding is, is I think they think Australian, particularly like the common man's Australian, let's put it that way, uh, is cruder than American English. In part, because you got to remember the people they sent there were all <laughs> a bunch of friggin' criminals, you know, and, um, uh, and they brought that urban patois with them, uh, to the bloody shores. Um, I actually want to do a, I have a friend who's in town at another think tank who I know from the cigar shop who's Australian. And I kind of want to just do an Australian, all things Australia podcast, which I think would be kind of fun. That would be. One of the things that listeners could do is offer suggestions for evergreen topics because I am going to be leaving town on a family vacation starting at the beginning of March. I leave town for a business thing and then I'm just going to stay gone. And so we want to put a bunch of stuff in the can, as it were. Um, so if there are topics that have very little to do with rank punditry that will not get dated other than a conversation with my wife, which my wife keeps insisting she will do, please send us your suggestions. And please keep you know, recommending The Remnant. Uh, you know, the word of mouth stuff is actually more important than the reviews. And we really want to make this thing the uh, Mobutu Seste Seco of the, uh, of the podcasting world. Um, Can I explain to anyone what that means? Sure. Go ahead. No, I... I... <laughs> What is it? All conquering rooster who leaps from conquest to conquest with fire in his wake. Okay, it's the full uh, title of Mobutu Sisiko, Kwanzaa Nabanga, whatever. But you know, it's and it and it's it's diversely uh, translated, but all the translations are awesome. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of titles, by the way, I so uh, listeners, if any listeners care about this, yeah, no, we have any listeners left at this. Yeah, point. I never understand. I never know whether or not we're whole, and that's another thing we'd like to know is like how many of you we should do. You know, we never got the results of the Russ Roberts survey, but I think maybe we should do a survey of our own, just asking a whole bunch of questions. Do you listen to the whole thing? Where do you listen to it? How did you find out about it? You know, a survey monkey thing. I don't think they cost a lot. And because I'm curious whether people actually are listening to this part or they're just like, okay, the guy left. Bye. Bye. I I know some people listen because they bring up strange stuff that you or I say, but I don't know how many. There are some people who listen only to this part. Maybe. There are many people who read the Goldberg file solely for the canine update, which, <laughs> um, which hurts my feelings sometimes. But so yeah, what was I saying? Speaking of titles, uh-huh. so re- listeners may know that or may remember that I started reading God Emperor of Dune by Frank Herbert. Uh, I'm about halfway through and I'm finding it weirdly relevant. Uh-huh. I, I like and it just happens to be this is also the week. That, did you see that uh, that that Trump uh, that Trump parade float in Italy the the God Emperor Trump thing 
I heard someone talk about it, but I did not see it. It's actually not from Dune. Uh-huh. Uh, it's from war, uh, a game called Warhammer uh-huh. 40K. But I think they got it from the title from Dune. Uh-huh. So this is a weird time for me to choose to read uh, God Emperor of Dune. But just a couple of things that attest to the relevancy of God Emperor of Dune. Um, there's one point in there where a character says that a, a population that walks is more easily controlled. Which just made me think of what you say, what the guy you've cited about the the legibility of, of populations yeah. and about the – James sort of, Scott. Is it yeah. yeah. And relatedly what you've said about how you how much the car has changed civilization. And you can't argue with a Buick though. Right, right. Uh, and like car, you can say that an automobile broke down the nuclear family more than uh, the feminine mystique did or something. Right. Um, what was the other thing that uh, – yeah, that – God, at one point, the God Emperor of Dune, the basically ruler of the, the known universe in the book, says that I am the only spectacle left in the universe. So he's like made society so boring mm-hmm. and so peaceful that he is the only interesting thing left. And it just kind of made me think of of, tr- of Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's like every every news story in D.C. sort of turns on him ultimately. Right. And like the press corps follows him around sort of like the fish speakers do <laughs> – the God Emperor of Dune in, in Dune. Um, and what was the last thing? There was one more point, one more weird th- Oh, yeah. So at one point, the God Emperor of Dune, uh, he has this private journal that we see selections from. And he has this long, because he has the ability, gosh, I love how nerdy this is getting. We're going to turn so many people off. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever. It's fine. Um, he has the ability both to see into the future and to access the memories of every, basically every living human being, every right. living being. Um, and he has, so he has, he's both connected to the past and to the future simultaneously. And he has this long discourse on how people think. Which can be very disorienting. I'll just say it from personal experience, but go on. Yes. And for him, actually, uh-huh. too. Yeah. Um, he has this long discourse on how people think that only in the present we can change the future, but actually the present can change the past. Mm-hmm. He almost literally says that at one point. And you have an entire. Very good essay in National Review, what, four or five years ago about this? Yeah, Days of Future Past, I think I called it. Yeah, the way that, for example, um, from 1917 to 1991, what the the October Revolution was seen as a really important date in Western history. Right. A defining date about who we are as a people. Yeah, our, and then yeah. the Soviet Union collapsed, and it's like, oh, I guess 1917 isn't as important. And then once 9-11 happens, suddenly... What fourteen fifty nine? Whenever the the gates of Vienna. Yeah, the Lepanto, the siege of Lepanto, something, some date around there suddenly becomes a lot more important because where the West is in cultural friction with Islam again, and so we've sort we're now we're thinking about the last time that happened. Yeah. Um. So it's just amazing. It's I uh, maybe you got all of this from I, it's God. It's entirely possible. I, again, I told you I, those I love those books when I first read them, and it's it's weird how so, some stuff. You start thinking about where you got these ideas for things. But no, on the thing about the present changing the past, if you just think about like how little the rise of the, – the, the rise of the House of Saud and Wahhabism in the 1920s mattered when I was in college. I mean that was something that you learned about if you really specialized. And then for like the first 10 years of my life or the 10 years of my life after 9-11 – this was the, where all of these conversations were about where Islam came from, you know, these splits between Shia and Sunni. And a generation of, I saw it as a generation of people, sort of people half a generation younger than me, they were growing up intellectually 
learning about Islam the way like my generation grew up learning about the Soviet Union. And um, it was just sort of fascinating to see. And then you just you just think about all the different ways in which like I, I kind of want to write a piece about this one day about how the the sort of New York City populism – I did a G5 about this at one point. New York City populism that led to the election of Rudy Giuliani, which nobody thought had national consequences. Um, in retrospect, I think was one of the most important things to happen in the country because in, in, in certain ways, it is precisely what led to Trump. Um, is the worldview that Trump brings with him, is the worldview that a lot of his advisors have, a lot of his biggest fans in the sort of Fox News right-wing media have the same sort of they – they have a morality tale about taking back New York City for the, like the outer borough white ethnics that is very different than the sort of uh, the rural America – uh, populism story that is usually told by um, the mainstream media that explains Trumpism. It explains why the rural America populists like Trump, but it doesn't explain why this coterie of people around essentially Manhattan and the New York Post and Fox News fell for Trump so hard so early. That was a different populist story that was never really told because um, – the way New York politics works is that it is profoundly parochial and the people – it's like very rarely do you hear about national political figures in London talking about basic London politics. They you know, talk about national politics, right? And so the media didn't really understand what was happening in their own backyard. And anyway, my point is, is that it's one of these things I think that the, 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 the present changes the significance of things in the past in our consciousness because it, it – shines a light backwards on it. But now I'm truly rambling. And the last thing I'll mention, recently, uh, uh, is it Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris? I believe it's Kamala. Kamala Harris said something. Uh, I, can't, I don't remember the details. This will be the last Dune-related thing I say for now. Uh, she said something about uh, uh, she, she admitted to smoking uh, pot at some point in college, but also really enjoying some uh, hip-hop artists of the like late 80s or early 90s but the for whatever reason the timeline didn't align so that like the hip hop artist came way later than huh. her than her pot smoking happened and so she was conflating the two things in her mind or she was using melange and she was seeing through time and listening to music from the future that could have happened yeah, i don't i don't think that was what happened um and we're not going to get deep into the Melange stuff, which is the for those who for the four of you who are still <laughs> listening, um, is the drug in the in in the Dune books. Just as a matter of rank punditry, though, I think Kamala Harris is making a grave mistake, where she is trying to win what Rich Lowry calls the woke primary. All of these Democrats are trying to win to prove that they are the basically the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez candidate in the race and win over the, the 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 hipster woke social justice kids when what she should be doing is running as the former prosecutor who is tough on all sorts of things and let the fact that she's multi-ethnic and all that kind of stuff speak for itself. I, I, I've been meaning to write about this. It is fascinating to me how the Democrats don't seem to understand that they either need 
a white candidate who's appealing to minorities, or they need a minority candidate who's appealing to whites. The, you can't have the minority candidate that is running as as a essentially as a minority candidate. I mean, you look at Barack Obama; his whole twenty eight two thousand eight run was geared at reassuring, was was winking and code wording to the sort of you know we are the ones we've been waiting for progressive types who were just all in because he had the cool name. And, you know, he when he looked from a podium, he could tell he was looking into the middle distance of the next century and all of that kind of stuff. He Melange. Had, he had all of those credentials. But then he's talking about how he opposed gay marriage. He's, you know, we all worship the same God. He was reassuring white Americans that he wasn't just running as the black guy or the – and – Yeah, I remember this – I mean some of my earliest – this will make you feel old, I'm sure. But my earliest like actually fully tuned in political memories are the 2008 presidential campaign. And I remember seeing an ad not sponsored by the NRA but featuring a guy who was in the NRA – uh, for Obama saying, yeah. like, I don't worry about Obama. He's not going to take your guns. I'm in the NRA. And I, as <laughs> in my individual capacity as an NRA member, not as representing the NRA, approve this message or whatever. But that's exactly in, of, a, yeah. of, of a piece with what you were saying. Yeah. And um, and the thing was, with the, the interesting thing to me about it was that there were two groups that really understood how much Trump, I mean, uh, uh, Obama was lying. The serious left-wing people who loved him and the serious right-wing people who hated him. <laughs> um, but it was it was a su- successful thing. And so like, Kamala Harris, she should be running in uh, – first of all, I hate all this talk of lanes. But she should be running in like the Joe Biden lane. You know, she should be running as the candidate who, you know, put bad guys in prison, let her get attacked from some of the social justice people for, you know, being – uh, too saw too hard on crime and all that kind of stuff. That would be good for her. Bill Clinton loved being. He was a triangulator. He he reassured you know the white voters that he needed to win by doing some truly horrible things. I mean, his execution of Ricky Ray Rector, which is long forgotten now, but he took time off from the campaign to go home and execute a mentally retarded guy who did heinous horrible things, but um like literally told the guards to hold his like pie um, on his way to the electric chair and he would eat it on his, he would eat it when he got back. And wow. uh, he did, you know, he went after sister soldier. He did, he went after welfare. He did all the, he, he, he signaled that he was a, what he called a different kind of Democrat said abortion should be safe, legal and rare. People who want to win, want the, 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 the swing voters in America still are the people who want either a right-wing Democrat or a left-wing Republican in a lot of ways. And particularly since there's so much competition in the Democratic field to be the most left-wing Democrat, it strikes me as just obvious that some of these people should be working a little harder at reassuring swing voters, you know. But I didn't plan on getting into the this stuff either. I just – I really just don't want to – do the other stuff I have to do when this podcast is over. So yeah, well, just go on forever. Yeah, like I, I have at least one more thing to say, and maybe you'll have another thing to say. So there's an an image that now that all these presidential campaigns are popping up, uh, there's an image that I see from every single one of them that just makes me realize how much I hate the way that the cult of the presidency has absorbed our our political culture. You see it when the the new candidate is standing in front of a podium 
smiling, with all the the regalia of the campaign already there, and there's already a crowd behind the candidate, and it's just the the like, the narcissism on display, and just the idea that you need to set all of this up just so that this person can stand behind a podium and have an adoring crowd behind them. It's just I I, I hate I this is, and this is a completely nonpartisan complaint. I just hate this particular like this this tiny aspect or this tiny thing shows how the presidency has just engulfed our political system because it's conveniently singular. It's one person you can always focus on mm-hmm. and then it creates this sense that this is the only position in our government that matters, which then becomes reality because of the way that the presidency was set up and is conflicting with things that have changed since its origin. It's just and I, I, I've, I'm seeing it every week with these new campaigns, new, a new a new crop of narcissists appearing to just bask in the in the glow of of, of adulation. It's it's ugh. no, I agree. It's, it's, it's using people as meat props. Yeah. And um, and it's one of the things I don't like about I mean, it's one of the reasons I just loathe the State of the Union so much. But we should you know, I'm tempted to be like one of these cranks who just insists on saying weird things to make a point. But, you know, Steve Hayward makes this point every now and then where he says, you know, the proper way to pronounce president is president. Yeah. Because that's the way the job was conceived is he was presiding over the the real work which was being done by Congress in a way, right? <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and the, you know the, the job of president was designed – Explicitly, I mean, how many founding fathers admitted this, that they had George Washington in mind when they worked up the job description? Uh-huh. And, 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 and George Washington was the president at the Constitutional Convention, and, and he only spoke up once the entire time on my you know, pet issue about making congressional districts smaller. But that's a, that's a topic for another podcast. Um, and uh, Forgive me if my eyes have grown weak in service of my country. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just the, the, this idea of, I mean, it's very much God Emperor of Dune thing where yeah. the president is the only show in town and you have so many of these congressmen and congresswomen who actually just don't know how to do the job anymore. All right. We are now just truly filibustering. I have to learn about what's going on in the wall negotiations because I'm going to be on special report tonight and I'm supposed to be informed about all that. So I got to make some phone calls and move some paper around as it were. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. I don't know when the next podcast is coming out, but uh, we're still going to try as best we can to up the frequency of these things. Please keep the suggestions coming in and uh, and I'll see you next time. No, you want this is a podcast.